0: I went wondering
1: Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. And I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Sitting next to me is the lovely Leah. Yes, how are you? Doing great. Doing great. Leah, Leah, is there anything you'd like to say to your mom who's at home? Okay, go ahead and look at look in that camera and go ahead. I love you, Mama. Oh, isn't that beautiful? You're and the sweetest mommy ever. <laughs> you're the sweetest mommy ever, and I've met your mom, and I think you're right. Now, um, Leah's dad is a, a, a Baptist pastor. Uh, Leah lives in Syracuse, and he's a pastor in Ogden. So we'll be talking more about it in future shows. So, Leah, thank you so much for coming on. Okay. All right. Bye bye. All right. Uh, whether you're watching on the NRB Network, TV Channel 378, or if you're listening on the radio at KUTR AM 820, The Truth, we welcome you. If you have family or friends who can't watch uh, Heart of the Matter on television, uh, tell them to go to www.hotm.tv and they can watch it live streaming video from anywhere in the world. We welcome all of our live streaming video viewers. Uh, I Was a Born Again Mormon, the book is available at www.bornagainmormon.com or where most uh, reputable Christian books are sold. Every Sunday, two things related to our ministry are going on in the greater Utah area. First, we have two weekly never-denominational Bible studies. And they are open to anybody. You go to a church, go to your churches. It's just a Bible study. Or if you're coming out of Mormonism, or if you don't believe in God, or if you're this or that, it doesn't matter. Everybody is welcome. One is held at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. The other in, uh, at the Alpine Church in Riverdale. So go to www.calvarycampus.com for more information. Secondly, from 1 to 2 p.m. a.m. 820, uh uh radio the truth k-u-t-r the truth uh airs rebroadcasts of heart of the matter every sunday from one to two so while you're driving to your bible study if nothing's going on at your church or uh you're going to come and visit us from one to two p.m turn on uh, k-u-t-r uh, am 820 the truth and you can hear heart of the matter there throughout the years we've had a number of people say they want to help Aletheia ministries in one way or another And the ministry has expanded to the point where we need help in some very specific things. Some very low-key and easy things you can do from your home every now and then. And others might be a little bit more involved. It's up to you. So on Saturday, July 10th, we are holding a meeting for any and all who want to uh, see what's going on in the growth of Aletheia Ministries and how they can help. Again, All interested in helping in some way with the demands of the ministry. We're holding the meeting Saturday, July 10th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Holiday Inn Express located at 4500 South, just off the I-15. Lunch will be served. Please go to HOTM.TV for more info. And okay, folks, this coming uh, Saturday, not this coming Saturday, this coming September, uh, Saturday, September 4th, set your calendars to join us for our fifth annual Burning Heart uh, Open Water Concert and Live Baptism. Uh, strike that and reverse it. Open Water Baptism and Live Concert. Of course, it's going to be featuring Adams Road from Florida, uh, plus much more. It's a fun event. Just mark your calendar Saturday, September 4th. And year of 2011 is going to be called the Year in Guests. We are sending out invitations to certain people right now, trying to get them to agree to come on the program. Many are LDS, many are Christian, many are in apologetics, many are very interesting people. We want to open the doors to anybody who has a unique point of view or story or complaint or argument with us. We're hoping that people will contact us and let us know they're interested. Now, I'm forever being accused on the Internet about... Uh, refusing to allow informed Latter-day Saints to either call in, they're always welcome, or so here's their chance. They can be a guest for the full hour, and they can uh, sit and talk. We invite any and all. And again, that means atheists, polygamists, people who uh, receive revelations, defenders of the faith, Book of Mormon supporters, testimony sharers, Thomas Monson's a prophet, people, God was once a man people, Joseph restored the gospelites, you're just picking on us crybabies, fanatical Christian zealots out there carrying crosses at Temple Square, whatever. Uh, go to, uh, write Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at alatheamedia.com or call us at one 868 4686 Remember, I'm not a debater, even though I do that on the phone. If you're a guest, I'll give you the time to say your case, but we will certainly examine it. When I was interviewed over three hours on John Dillon's mormonstories.org, I got a little bit impassioned when we started talking about the LDS brethren. And uh, since that interview, we have received a number of comments of why I have such animosity to these good men who have given their lives in the service of the church. One of the draws LDS missionaries use when they have an audience of an investigator of the LDS Church is to say something like, you know, Mr. Jones, when Jesus was on the earth, he established his church with 12 apostles. Well, all the churches of, of all the churches on the earth today, guess which one uh, has 12 leading apostles? That's right, Mr. Jones, only the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. When Paul wrote to the people of Corinth, he described the life and status of an actual apostle of the Lord. And let me read you what he said. And as I do, see if Paul's description of what the apostles were then matches up to the way Mormon apostles present themselves today in how they look, in how they're received, and how they speak, and how they live. You ready? Paul said, quote, uh, For I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were appointed unto death. For we made, are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men." So Paul in this first verse says that these apostles were appointed last of all in the bringing forth of the gospel, that they were anointed unto death, and that they were made a spectacle into the, uh, unto the world. And then he goes on to compare the actual apostles with the believers at Corinth at the time. And listen to what Paul says. He says, "...we," meaning the apostles, "...are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ, He says, we are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, but we are despised. He says, even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain place to live. And labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and as our a off-scourging of all things even to this day. Paul makes it very clear a number of things about being an actual apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, they're fools for Christ's sake, weak and despised, hungry, thirsty, naked and buffeted, had no place to dwell, labored with their own hands, were reviled, persecuted, defamed, made as the filth of the world, a world, and considered a scourge. Why? He goes on to say later in Corinthians, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, and base things of the world and things which are despised has God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to not things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Now, my friends, take a look uh, somehow in your magazines or online or at general conference at the attitude, the appearance, and the speech, the lifestyle of these men who claim to be apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. With that, let's have a prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you and love you, and we seek you in our lives. We thank you for this opportunity to share, and we pray that you will send your spirit. Things I say, many of them uh, are absolutely ridiculous and wrong, so we pray you'll just have those evaporate, but the things that are true will come forth and shine into hearts that are seeking you. We pray for our audience, we pray for our volunteers, we pray for people who are seeking the world over, who see the program, that you will reach into their heart and reveal yourself and that they will receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. In our year-long alphabetical study of comparing doctrine biblical and Mormon, we find ourselves in the G's tonight and are faced with perhaps the single most debated subject of the year, God. His nature, his attributes, his makeup. What does the Mormon church teach about God and what does the Bible say? The differences that arise between the LDS doctrine about God and the biblical perspectives are profound. And they often produce insurmountable problems in the Mormon Christian debate. I know from my own experience of being an active and indoctrinated Latter-day Saint that understanding the Christian view of God topped my list of tough things for me to comprehend along with the LDS myth of a premortal existence and romanticized fables about marriage being eternal but there are reasons for this so before even saying word one about the nature of God his person his identity his makeup his ontology that's the big word for it it's very important for me to preface our study by looking at roadblocks the roadblocks that inhibit people, especially Latter-day Saints, from understanding important biblical descriptions of God. Roadblock number one, we are a fallen, we are all fallen creatures of God, unable to discern spiritual truth until we're born again. This state of spiritual illiteracy is the result of Adam introducing sin into the world. And therefore, a universal death of the spirit, part of our makeup, occurred. Since the fall, because all people are born spiritually dead, we therefore come into the world and we're operating only by our souls, essentially. Our minds, our will, our emotions, and our bodies. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus that a person must be born again spiritually born again, that the first birth of life is not enough. In 1 Corinthians uh, 2.14, it verifies this by saying, but the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So men and women and children prior to being born again wander about and they see the world from a fallen perspective from a very soulish perspective. And the Greek word as we've said many times for soul is the suke, and it's comprised of our minds and our will and our emotions. And that's what makes us up and we operate by the mind, will and emotions as we wander through this life without having the spirit of God with us yet. Natural men and women walk about and they say, well, I think this is true, the mind. I really want this to be true, the will and I feel that this is true, the emotions, so therefore it must be true. And by this method we are able, as unregenerated creatures, that mean people who are not born again, to satisfy our natural inclinations, to please our own will, and satiate our own natural minds. So that is the first roadblock, we are fallen creatures of God, unable to discern spiritual truths until we're born again. The second roadblock that inhibits our ability to understand spiritual truths is that in our fallen state, we are terrified of uncertainty. We want answers and reasons and information that support the world around us. As children, when we sit in front of a television set and we don't understand how this happens, sometimes we're told or sometimes we imagine that people are actually inside the TV set that there are actually little people in there doing what we're watching. And that makes us feel comfortable and we don't have to sit and wonder how that thing is working. The philosopher Spinoza coined the phrase nature abhors a vacuum, which supports the fact that we want, we seek, we desire answers to fill in the void of a very chaotic world. Supporting Spinoza's claim is the fact that there are some folks who suffer a specific kind of brain injury, And these folks who have this specific kind of brain injury will find that in their vision they have a blank spot. No matter where they look is a dark blank spot because of this specific type of brain injury. Well nature abhors a vacuum so much that the brain will locate a picture or an image like of Mickey Mouse or the Eiffel Tower and stick it in that dark spot so no matter where that person looks they're seeing Mickey Mouse along with everything else that their eyes are able to see. It doesn't take very long for nature, our bodies, to ab- abhor that vacuum and fill it with something that gives meaning. This gives rise to people believing that it is their right and their duty and even their calling from God to fill in those blanks for us. So, so far, we have two facts. First, we are fallen creatures of God, unable to discern spiritual truths. And second, we hate vacuums or holes in our lives. And we try to fill the spaces up with something, anything that will bring us comfort and peace in the face of uncertainty. You got all that? The third roadblock and the final one that inhibits our understanding great spiritual truths is the fact that there are men and women who are willing to provide us with all the answers we want that will fill in the gaps of our unregenerated thinking by concocting information that is outside of God's word. This is where cult leaders, heretics, liars, con men and women, religious frauds, and charlatans come in. Consider this. You are someone who is wondering about God, but you are born without an ability to understand spiritual things that describe the incomprehensible uh, nature of his being. You find yourself uncertain in this cosmos and it creates a lot of uh, discomfort within you. There's a knock at your door and you open it and you find some Scientologists or Reverend Sun Young Moon's group or the Hare Krishnas, or the Christian scientists, or the Jehovah's Witnesses, or a set of Latter-day Saint Mormon missionaries, you name it, they all do the same thing. They are filling up gaps so that you can find peace and comfort in a soul that cannot discern spiritual things. They take people who cannot understand matters and they fill those gaps in with promises and myths and fables, giving them certainty to the appeals of their natural mind, will, and emotions. They provide certainty even if it's not based in truth because it feeds needs, it comforts uncertainty and provides answers that satisfy what? Their minds, their wills and their emotions. Any charismatic leader, any group can do that and they do it all the time. So attractive is this approach to human beings that cult leaders like Jim Jones and men of his ilk before and after him get very popular. In response to this popularity, they begin to espouse more, quote unquote, truths that are outside of the Bible that feed these people who can't see anything with the spiritual eyes, so it feeds their soul. And the cult leader's popularity grows even more. And and then we have a religious cult being born. A group that takes gospel truths found in God's word and alters them so as to give people who are not spiritually reborn certainty. Now compare this approach with the men and women uh, um, who teach the Bible contextually and straight up, nothing extracurricular, just his word. It's like comparing. It's like here is the gospel straight up for people and it's then you're comparing it with people who provide all the answers to everything. It's like a kid looking at a Ferris wheel with all the lights and all the fun and people laughing and screaming versus a math book. Which one are they gonna go to? The math book is difficult. It requires some discipline. You might have to follow its rules. You have to study to get the math book. Or you have the the, um, carnival of spiritual thought that satisfies all your immediate needs. Which one do you run to? You run to the Ferris wheel unless you're truly a seeker of truth. That's why we talk to you. Some of you out there really want the truth. Well, the cult leaders know that their attractiveness gets people, and they draw them in with imaginary theologies and and humanist explanations about God and heaven and hell and suffering. But before you know it, elements of control start coming in to keep all the lemmings within the cult leader's control. So you start having regiments on your diet, and you start being told by these leaders or their churches or their groups what you should need to wear and what your hair and makeup needs to look like, and pretty soon your activities are all meted out, and it's all accepted by the people who are looking for certainty, and now they just hope to take the responsibility of their choices and put them off on the institution. When children are born into these homes, they're caught from, taught from the cradle of these myths, and their chance of seeing beyond it all is even more difficult. And so, this is where the Mormon doctrine of the makeup of God meets the Biblical presentation of the makeup of God and why it is so difficult to bridge the gap for people who have cut their teeth on the idea that God is a man, glorified, separate and distinct from the Son, separate and distinct from the Holy Spirit, and the idea of a Trinity is absolutely repulsive. It's like advanced uh, Algebra II trig. I mean, you hear Trinity and you think Algebra II Trig. You hear God was once a man and you can become like him. You see Ferris wheel and it's what it does to the mind. And so you are locked into the simplicity of that and you don't have to think. And it provides you with certainty and your soul is satisfied all the while your spirit remaining dead. Without even knowing it, present day Mormons recite a revised story called the First Vision when explaining the origins of their faith. The story has nine different accounts to it. The first of which contains very little of the material the official version uh, that they use today. It was in this story of the first vision that Mormon founders, uh, the Mormon's founder, Joseph Smith Jr. learned the truth, he says, about the nature of God. Supposedly, as later versions of the first vision relate, young Joseph entered a grove of trees to pray to get concrete answers to things that troubled him religiously. And while in prayer to God the Father, uh, Jesus Christ and the Father appeared to him in a vision. What made this vision so revolutionary was that Joseph said that God the Father and Jesus Christ were in bodies, physical bodies, of flesh and bone, separate and distinct and as tangible as man's, and they stood glorified as they were above him in the air. And while the reaction was one of absolute horror from the Christian community who understood what the Bible says about the nature of God, the story had some great appeal for people who never really understood how Jesus was supposed to be God, but he also prayed to the Father. And so this stuff started to suck them in. Enter an appealing alternative to the Trinity, which provided answers to the spiritually unlettered, filling the gaps for those who knew not God, providing certainty and facts where facts did not exist. On this, Mormonism was born. Standing in direct opposition to the Mormon teaching that God the Father is a glorified man, Bible-believing Christians use a term to describe the nature of the only true and living God. The term is Trinity. Trinity is used to express the doctrine of the oneness of God as subsisting in three distinct persons. The word is derived from the Greek word trios, uh, first used in the church by uh, by an early church father, Theophilus, uh, somewhere between A.D. 168 and 183. It may have also originated from a Latin term, trinitas, trinitas which was first used by another early church father, Tertullian, in AD 220 to express this doctrine of one God subsisting of three persons. They derived the term Trinity because of all the different applications of Godhood that are assigned to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And so in order to come up with a word that would encapsulate that, they came up with Trinity. The propositions involved in the the doctrine are first that there is one true God and living God eternal and that this one true God is composed of Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. It was created by man to help defend heretical teachings from predatory ignoramuses who couldn't accept the idea that God consists biblically in three persons. So they started coming up with a whole bunch of different things. And so the early church fathers said, how can we take all the teachings of the Bible contextually, Genesis to Revelation, read how it describes God, and put it into a word that you can say, we believe this, versus what all the uh, heretics were saying. And they came up with Trinity. Uh, many Mormon defenders suggest that the fact Trinity is not in the Bible proves something, all the while forgetting that monotheism, polytheism, polygamy, sacrament, celestial kingdom, stake president, to name a few, are not in the Bible either. Okay? So, what of this word Trinity? Does it properly describe the nature or ontology of God the way that non-biblical word polygamy describes a person having more than one spouse or the way monogamy or the way monotheism describes the belief in one God and one God alone? There are a number of factors that have to be addressed in our search to understand the nature of God better from a biblical perspective. I'm going to leave off tonight with a list of them. And next week, we're going to come back to part two and supply the biblical supports for them. First of all, unlike the LDS and Scientologists and Christian scientists and Jehovah's Witnesses who all sort of sprouted up around the same time and share similar approaches to knowing and understanding God and a same perspective of who Jesus was, meaning they demean him, Bible-believing Christians understand very well that we are creations of a grand almighty creator. We are the clay. We are not the potter. To even think that our human minds can comprehend the infinite nature and construction of God is a joke. And yet, hating the vacuum, people continue to try. So the first point we must consider is that no no, no matter how hard we strain, we will not in this life come to comprehend the totality or probably even a smidgen of what the Trinity means. It doesn't mean we don't search and study and seek. And it doesn't mean we won't ever make some sense of things. But to get the totality, forget it. You're going to have to learn to love the vacuum. Secondly, it's really important that we understand the names of God used in Scripture. These will help us understand the nature of the Trinity, too. Third, to try and comprehend the Trinity, we have to try and comprehend the nature of Jesus. If he was God in the flesh, what was the relationship to him with the Father and the Holy Spirit? How was he the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth? Why did Jesus in the flesh pray to a father if he's God? Fourth, we need to examine the characteristics found in God. Are the characteristics of the Father also found in the Son? Totally, are they also found in the Holy Spirit? Does the Son possess all of the attributes of the Father? And finally, of course, we need to explore the physical ontology, the physical makeup of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What are they? What does Scripture say they are? How long have they been? What are they composed of physically? All of this will help us come to a portrait of the one God, and then we will be in a better position to either reject the Trinitarian doctrine or embrace it. All right, with that, let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. First time callers, please. Please, and turn down your TV sets. We love LDS callers. Give us a ring. Now, listen, if you're watching on the NRB Network, Channel 378 Direct TV, do not call. You are watching a pre recorded episode of Heart of the Matter. So let's run a spot for our partners program. We'll come back and take your calls. All right, grab a pencil, just grab something to write with. Um, we have tried to do this spot several times. I don't even know what time of day it is anymore. I've been sitting here so long. And, but what we want to tell you is... Heart of the Matter has been blessed greatly in trying to reach people with the message of Jesus Christ, especially those who are in the LDS Church. We contend for the faith each and every week for five years. We have hundreds of programs, and by the grace of God, the fruit has been plentiful and we're seen all over the world. But this medium that we've chosen called TV is very expensive and we need you to help us stay on the air. So there are ways that you can do it, and we want you to partner with us. That's what we're asking you to do. So write this phone number down, 888-868-4686. You can also go online. You can go to www.hotm.tv, or you can write us at Alathia Ministries, 4760 Highland Drive, number 515, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84117. Again, let me give you that information. You can call us at 888 868 4686. You can sign up to be a partner by going online at hotm.tv or you can write us at Aletheia Ministries 4760 Highland Drive, number 515, Salt Lake City, Utah 84117. The Lord has taken this in spite of the host in spite of the technical inability for me to get this partner's program down right. But we need you, and if he inclines your heart and you're interested, please contact us and help us keep the program on the air. God bless you. We are back. Uh, Listen, we have a comment here uh, from Laura. I'm gonna get to it in a second, but we really appreciate those of you who help the ministry in any and every way. There are, you know, Derek and I went, and my daughter Cassie, we went and saw a woman today, um, uh, Beth. And Beth is in a room and has been in this room in a nursing home that is about the size, the width, a little bit bigger than my table, with a bed and a little stand. And she writes us letters and stuff, and we got to see her, and it's so wonderful to know that prayers from people like Beth are coming out there. Uh, we, we just, we love you and we appreciate everything you do. We know it's hard to remember everything. And uh, so we thank you. We thank God for all that you do, whether you're a volunteer or you support us through prayer or by whatever it means. All right. We have uh, Lauren who says she was shunned when she left the LDS church. Should she now be afraid of more difficulties now that she's left? And then Janet from St. Louis, Missouri writes, how can a person tell if they are saved? Well, this is really interesting because I'm going to kind of merge the answer for both of those. First and foremost, there's a number of ways Scripture says that you can tell that you are saved. And I I want to say probably one of the most miraculous ways, in my opinion, is new vision. Jesus said, listen, pray that they will see and their, ear, their eyes will see, their ears will hear, their heart will be converted, then they can be healed. And this vision is seeing the world in a different way. You start to see the ridiculousness of the material world and you start to see the gloriousness of the spiritual world and you start feeding your spirit rather than your flesh. That's one way. Love that you have for people. Like you have the idiot who you've always wanted to hit with a hammer who's riding his bike by you because he, he does something mean every day and he comes by and you don't want to take him and hit him with the hammer now. There, there, there's something in you that says, I want to kind of say hi to him and you can't believe it because your flesh says, no, hit him with a hammer, but your spirit says, no, you don't have to. That's another sign, this love is a really big one. and And your desire to read the word of God I mean, you really hunger and you really open the word and you devour it. That's another thing that comes along with people at varying degrees and at different times and um, uh, selflessness and all these different attributes. And you read 1 Corinthians 13, it will tell you all those. But you know, one thing that coincides here with this question about will you be treated differently? When I came to know the Lord, my entire material world started crumbling Prior to that I was able to manage it and then everything just started falling apart. So in terms of persecution, remember what Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek. All these things are attributes of someone who has received Christ, but their life suddenly doesn't get great. They don't suddenly win lottos and, and driving around in limousines. Pretty soon they're riding bicycles and, and they're, they're not winning even a bingo game because the world turns on you, you know? So if things are tough because you've left the Mormon church, but you found the Lord, you can probably anticipate them even getting tougher. But it doesn't mean you turn because the Lord is there with you and he who is within you is much stronger than he who is without. And you're waiting for that day when you return home and, you, and the rewards, eternal rewards, are there for your faithfulness. So those are some things that kind of come with being born again and with uh, also leaving the LDS church in this community and being treated badly. Okay, we're going to Jared in bountiful first-time caller. Jared, you're on heart of the matter. He hey, I can't hear him. Hello. Jared, you're on the air. You got to turn your. Uh, yes. TV. You got to turn your TV down, Jared?
0: I got it down.
1: You're on the air, man?
0: My question is uh, here a couple three months ago, You had uh, mentioned something about a website, and I pulled it up, and there was a deal in there about the great white horse. And uh, uh, something about, uh, I was reading down through there, and something about Warren Hatch, and that he would be the chosen one to ride that horse.
1: Oh, that was the white horse prophecy. Okay. And you should really probably go to utlm.org to read all about that, because I get my facts mixed up. I'm, I'm certain on the White Horse Prophecy, it was once taught, and it was a Mormon belief and doctrine, but the LDS today say no, 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 it never was, it never was, and yet they still, and what the White Horse Prophecy essentially is, is that the Constitution of the United States of America is gonna hang by a thread, and the Latter-day Saint elders are gonna come in and save it, and so they kinda use that when some of their people are running for office, and that might be why the tie is to Orrin Hatch. Okay. Yeah, but check out utlm.org. It will help you out a lot in that stuff.
0: All right. Thank you very much.
1: You're welcome. Take care.
0: You too. Bye-bye.
1: We are going to Dean in Murray, Utah. Dean, you're on heart of the matter.
0: Uh, yes. Um, uh, Sean, how you doing?
1: Doing well. How are you?
0: <laughs> good, good. Um, listen, I just wanted to reiterate something that you were saying. Um, uh, the first great commandment um, is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God.
1: Yeah.
0: And um, if you break that down into Hebrew, it says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our Elohim is one Yahweh.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Elohim is a plural word for God. Yeah. And Yahweh is the name of that plurality. And uh, I I wanted to point out the fact, when Jesus said, Go ye into all the world and baptize in the name of, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, He said one name, in the name of, not plural, names of, but one name. And yeah, we're that gonna, one name is Yahweh. Yeah, we're
1: going to cover all, we're going to cover those points in more detail next week, but you're absolutely right, and they're great points, in the well, name also, of the Father, not in the, the names.
0: Yes, not in the names, but one single name for all three of them.
1: Yeah, and you make that other good point in talking about Deuteronomy, the great Shema is, is how it says that when you, you just pointed out the Lord our God and how the Lord is the Yahweh and how God is the Elohim. And yet the LDS say that Heavenly Father's name, pronoun, personal pronoun is Elohim and that Jesus' name is Yahweh and they completely mix it up. And anybody who does any research at all in the Old Testament and new can find that that doctrine is completely messed up.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And another thing, too, Jesus, Jesus claimed to be I Am, the voice on the mountain. Okay, yeah. He would actually, he said, I add to you another commandment. I add to you another
1: commandment.
0: Yeah. Or he says, you've heard it said, but I say. This points to the fact that he is part of Jehovah, or yeah. part of Elohim. And um, you're absolutely right pointing that out that the name of Elohim is placed on a plural a plura, no the name of Yahweh is placed on a plurality. Yeah. Not on one single individual.
1: Right. Because El is the singular name for a singular name for a god but Elohim is the plural.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Hey, really good call, Dean. You're firing us up for next week where we're going to get into the Word and show how God is uh, one of three persons.
0: Hey, hey, uh, Sean, God bless you. Keep up the good work, and I'm so happy that you do this in love. I know you do this in love.
1: Thanks so much, Dean. God bless.
0: God bless you, buddy. Bye. Okay,
1: bye-bye. We're going to go to Cedric in Florida. Uh, it looks like it says he's LDS and then Ari in Tacoma, Washington. So, Cedric, you're on Heart of the Matter.
0: Oh, Ari.
1: Cedric, what's going on, man?
0: Well, I just needed to ask you a question. Uh, the, uh, the Trinitarian uh, God uh, is uh, an all-pervading spirit and as such has no body, has no arms or legs. Does it have a brain?
1: Well, let me ask you something. Your first premise was what the Trinitarian God is. What?
0: An all-pervading spirit. Where do
1: you read that?
0: The the all well the, the Trinitarian God is a spirit, right?
1: Uh, no, the Trinitarian God is composed of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the Son is flesh. So, what? Do you, where are you getting this all-pervading spirit okay, nonsense? So,
0: so the the. Uh, Evangelical
1: God is not a spirit. The God is a spirit. When Jesus was incarnate, He told us plainly: God is a spirit, and you must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Okay,
0: but we also know God is a spirit.
1: But wait, we also know that uh, Jesus told Philip: Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we have an incarnate manifestation of God, which is flesh, material. Jesus took his body with him back up at the ascension. And then we have the Father who is spirit. And we have the Holy Spirit that is spirit. Now, get back to your question again.
0: Now, so then you're saying that Jesus has a body of flesh and bones?
1: Yes, I am.
0: Okay, so then you're violating the principle of the, of the Trinitarian concept. Written, which written, undivi-
1: written by who? Again, where See, do you been, read the this? The Nation
0: Creed says that the the Trinity has, is of undivided undivided substance. Okay? So you're dividing up the substance. So I'm not dividing
1: up that, any substance? If you're Jesus saying Jesus is the Trinity 100% is, God,
0: 100%. if you're saying the Trinity What? If you're saying that the Trinity is comprised of God the Father who is spirit. Yeah. God, the Holy Ghost, who is Spirit, yeah. and God, the Son, who is flesh, bones, and spirit. Yeah. Then you're dividing up the Trinity. No, you are the part of the, the part of the Trinity. No. That, no, you are Cedric. That is
1: no, Cedric, your your uh, unregenerated mind is dividing up uh, that. I'm not. I believe they you're are say, one. You're
0: saying that part of the Trinity has got body, and the rest of it has spirit. So, you're okay. dividing up the Trinity. No, and that I'm not dividing. The definition of the Trinity. What do you, who, in the Athanasian Creed.
1: The, the Athanasian Creed says they are of one substance that can't be divided. That is God. He is one. I agree with that. The problem is, go back to my first premise tonight, if you were able to watch there in Florida, and that is your finite mind, though you're trying to, is not going to get it. Sorry, as difficult as that is yeah. to say.
0: I yeah, know it's because- easy
1: to try to go and then you can kind of mock it because it's incomprehensible. But i got to tell you, next week we're going to show that all the attributes of the Father are present and assigned to the Son and are present and assigned to the Holy Spirit. That is one. The
0: the idea that that philosophers devised and created an incomprehensible idea about God is far different than understanding God.
1: Okay, let me tell you and something, Cedric. Wait a that second. Is, that you just, God you, is
0: not something that is totally understandable. Okay, God... Uh, That's far different than creating an incomprehensible idea, notion, that is impossible for anybody This to is understand.
1: beautiful. Cedric, let me tell you something. The people who get up and say the Christians worship a a Hellenized version of God brought on by Plato and all this, like Dallin Oaks likes to say from General Conference, are the very people who adopted Greek philosophy and turned it into their own theology, which are the Mormons. You're the one who who, uh, brought and made God a man, just like down from Mount Olympus. You're the ones who have done that, not the Christians. And and Gallant Oaks, every time he gets up in conference and says the Greek philosophies have twisted the idea, the true nature of God, that is exactly what Joseph Smith did.
0: But if you're saying that Jesus has a body and God has his spirit and the Holy Ghost is spirit... And they are the Trinity. Then you've divided up the Trinity. You've made that point in the seven part of the times. You've made that point seven times, Cedric. So you've Cedric, divided you, up the Trinity Cedric? and violated your own definition.
1: No, you know, I've I've violated your your thinking here because you're the one who keeps presenting the straw man of what the Trinity consists of, and you keep saying it has to be this the way. And Sean, of. if you say Jesus has a body, of flesh and bone, which we know he did. And we know he ascended up, and he's going to return with that body. So I can't—we can't deny that. So you're the one who keeps saying, "Now I am destroying the Trinitarian notion." I'm sorry, my friend. Well, you you're
0: violating—you're you're violating the definition. What? But get back to my original question. All right. If we're—if say, we're saying um, uh, that God, so the Trinity, the, so the uh, God is spirit. And, Okay, is 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 Trinity God?
1: Let me ask you something. Or is
0: God Trinity?
1: Let me ask you something. What filled Jesus' body? What what? What filled Jesus' body? What left when Jesus died? What existed his spirit, right? His, His spirit. Okay. That spirit and God's the God the Father's Spirit and the Holy Spirit likened them to a flame of fire and you have that flame of fire in the father and you take it and you put it that flame of fire and it's still fire and you, it's in the son and you take that fire and it's the holy spirit and you put those fires together and you take them apart three persons one god one fire right right
0: i understand the trinity the trinity is three persons of one undivided substance god the father god the son god the and you're holy saying god, because jesus is, is one god which you're, is one God to comprise the three persons okay. of one undivided Spirit, and but you're saying if you've that you've got be, three persons. And, and you're saying the three, per- the three persons is God that is, is the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And if one of them has flesh, and the other has spirit, the other two have spirit only. Then even that part of it is divided. That's and your, again that's again your again definition, you've Cedric. Definition.
1: That's, that's your the, definition. How could you say that? You're saying that I don't have God in me when the Holy Spirit dwells in my heart? Are you saying you're, that that's not God in me and I've divided God? I mean, you're, how, you're how far saying, are you going to take uh, this? The,
0: the, the definition of the Trinity means they are, of un, they are of undivided substance.
1: Okay, how many times are you going to repeat the substance this? substance is
0: not divided. Because that's the part that you always that's the part that you always ignore. I'm not ignoring it. That's the part it. that you I am, are, not, that's the part I,
1: that am you. I listen, I am not ignoring it. They are undivided. You are assuming because Christ took a body that he is separate and divided from the Father. His spirit that embodied Christ is the same spirit in the Father. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when he was revealed, his glory started coming out of his skin. That is the undivided substance of God. Jesus well, became incarnate. Can you get that?
0: The Catholics are a little smarter on this. They say that on the way from earth to heaven, Jesus discarded his body and went back into the Trinity as spirit only. Oh, well, that's Therefore, wonderful. they are consistent and you are not. Because
1: it made sense to some priest who had to come up with some rule because people weren't satisfied with the idea of three-in-one God just wake up man Jesus was God way. the Holy Spirit was God the Father is God you, they're not divided you, they are one we you, have stood on that from di- the beginning you are, you you are dividing it by putting Christ and saying he separated them that is your you're, notion that is not the Christian notion
0: violating.
1: that's your notion Cedric
0: you're and we are done your own definite.
1: someone just gave me this and I was waiting to use it It's so bad. (laughs) It says Cedric is still on the air and he's still talking. (laughs) Have at it, my friend. All right, we're going to Ari from Tacoma, Washington. Ari, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi, how you doing, Ari?
0: I'm doing well, thank you.
1: Thanks for calling. Um, I
0: just wanted to actually in regard to this message, point out that you had said something very profound to me as a former LDS person in your
1: interview on Mormon Stories, which was that
0: our bodies are created in God's image, and our bodies are three parts in one. And um, it took me uh, a long time to accept a whole Trinitarian God, but that really helped.
1: Oh, good. Well, praise God. I'm glad that assisted you. We're going to, we'll cover more of that, but you brought that up and I'll I'll continue to talk about it, Ari, but I really appreciate that you watched that Mormon Stories thing and that it helped. Thank you. Thank you so much. God bless.
0: You too.
1: Okay, bye-bye. You know, when it says man was created in, in God's image, uh, the LDS say, well, yeah, God is a man. He's got a penis, and he's got underarm hair, and, uh, and, and, and he used to be like us. That's the, that's the simple view so that we can make it make sense. But the scripture says, no, no, no. That's not how it works. We're created in his image because we are made three in one. We have a body. We have a soul and we have a spirit. Remember that soul, that mind, will, and emotion? And then we have the spirit. And when God created Adam out of the dust of the earth, that body, he breathed in him the pneuma, the the spirit of life. And that spirit of life commingled with that that dirt and it brought on a soul. And Adam became a living soul. Three parts, one person. Am I divided like uh, Cedric was saying? Am I broken up? Is my soul over there, my body over there, my spirit that way? No. What makes me me is three in one. Same thing with the temple of the Old Testament. Uh, It was composed of an outer court, an inner court, and a holy of holies. Three, one building. Same picture. Where did God visit? In the only place. The holy of holies. The spirit part. The outer court was more of the soulish stuff. The far outer court or the inner court was the soulish stuff. The far outer court was the body. All representative. Same model. Three in one. And yet we have guys who just don't want to do it. And Cedric is still talking, it says in uppercase letters. Listen, um, Brenda in St. George uh, wrote, the LDS are a wealthy group. But when I turn on a television, I hear Christians teaching about wealth and prosperity too, that you can have that. Why the search? Uh, Brenda, let me just say this. There's a current, there's an undercurrent afoot now within some uh, people who teach on TV and in their churches. It's called prosperity teaching and name it and claim it and all this stuff. And it's absolute hogwash. It's bull. It's baloney. It goes counter to the biblical uh, text. it goes counter what Jesus said life would be like as a Christian. It counters what Paul said about suffering and, and yes, God does want us to have an abundant life, but that's abundant in the spirit. Let me tell you something when Paul went, I think it was again to corinth and the people there were, they had a choice. They could follow the, the leaders and the rulers that had the rings and the gold and the fine apparel and they looked really nice. Or they could follow Paul's description that I gave earlier on, that they were fools for Christ's sake and they were uh, outcasts and they were the filth of the earth. You saw, and that by the weak things of the world, God is made mighty. So you got to see, this is the parallel. The things of this world, they are not, of God, we know that. What is it that God, Jesus, or that God says in John? Uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These are not of the Father. So be careful of this prosperity teaching and the stuff that comes along with it. We're going to go to Hayden in Draper, first-time caller, line two. Hayden, you're on. Heart of the matter.
0: I just wanted to say, Sean, thanks for your show. It's a great show, and Cedric is completely deluded. We are all spirit. <laughs> and I, I don't know where he gets his view of the of the trinity but it's it's completely diluted
1: yeah he was really insistent on the fact that jesus being in a, a corporal body ascending into heaven divided the the substance the continuity of the of god
0: well the godhead is is all spirit yeah just because there's substance in in his physical form when he came to earth and died for all of all sin, doesn't mean that that splits
1: the Trinity or the Godhead at all. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, uh, thanks so much. God h- bless you.
1: Thanks, Hayden. Appreciate the call. Bye. Bye, bye. Uh, we have a caller who's called us. Says Cedric, Spirit is dead. So he can't understand uh, the Trinity. You know, uh, let me give you another idea on the Trinity, which is going to be kind of confusing too. But I like the one about the flame. I don't like the clover. I don't like the egg. I don't like the ice and water because it's too uh, literal in a sense. And I think it breaks down philosophically. But here's one that I learned and, and, and it's a time. And, and you could say time is God, okay? So we have a past, we have a present, and we have a future. Okay. Now, right now I am sitting in the present. Oh, wait a minute. No, it's now, the, it's now the, uh, the future. No, wait. No, no. Now it's the past. No, wait a minute. I'm sitting in the present now. No, I'm not. I'm sitting in the future. Wait, where is it? Where is the past now? Wait, how does the past and where does it intersect with the future? How long am I in the present? How long? But now it's the future. Am I always in the present? Where's the future? Where's the past? You see, all of it is God time. But it's three parts, past, present, and future, and we cannot see the dividing line between them. It's constantly moving like this. Now, even that's going to fail somehow, but I like these ideas like the flame and those things and the time because they they start to encapsulate the incomprehensibility of this God that we worship. And do you really want to worship a God that you can understand? What did Isaiah say? You build an idol and it's made out of ceramics, okay? Okay. And he says, that thing has eyes that can't see, it has ears that can't hear, it has a mouth that can't speak, and you worship it. You know what he says? He says, you will become like your God. That's what you're aspiring to, that idol. You become as insensate as that thing was, okay? And the same thing, you want to worship a God who's anthropomorphic? You want to worship a God who was once a man, who once went to kick a field goal and he missed? You want to, you want to worship that God? I don't. Okay? I want one who's incomprehensible, who has always existed, who is without fail good, who I can ascend to, and he can help me be a better person. You get the difference? How biblical scripture leads you to the true and living God, and the myths of these men changes it. Oh, I'm on fire tonight. Okay, <laughs> let's go to Crystal in West Valley. Crystal, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello. Hello, Crystal. First of all, i
0: just got to tell you how I love you, my friend. I love and you, you know, too. Your point of view can be summed up in a few simple words. Okay. Those simple words are with God, all things are possible.
1: Very good. I like that very much. With God, all things are possible.
0: Absolutely. You continue on your mission, my friend, and God bless you.
1: Thanks, Crystal. God bless. Mm-hmm. Okay. Bye bye. Uh, Harvey says Messiah 15, 1 through 5 contradicts the Trinity. And he's right. The Book of Mormon was written when Joseph Smith was in an early part of his maturation as a guru, so to speak. And so he borrowed from heavily from the Bible and heavily from themes that were going on in the community and heavily from ideas that were bannered about by the local Christian churches. And the, and the Book of Mormon, if you watch like our seven-part series on that thing, you can see it was built up of all these themes that existed around him, even from newspapers, even from events uh, about the Indians. All that stuff was a conglomeration of his present time. Well, Joseph Smith included Trinitarian ideas. He included modalistic ideas ideas in there that the father becomes the son and the son becomes the spirit, very modalistic in his thinking. But then Joseph Smith, he did what he always does. He progressed along and he started to change his ideas and he started to learn more and more. And so pretty soon God became just two persons I don't know if you knew that, but in Mormon doctrine, Jesus became, I mean, God became two persons, not three, and then God became a man in the end. And about that time, that's when Joseph Smith was wiped off the face of the earth. So uh, uh, he digressed, actually. He digressed from the Book of Mormon presentation of who God was to the point where you get into the Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, et cetera. Craig wants to know, how do we figure in dinosaurs and science with the Bible? I think they figure in, Uh, perfectly, but you got to understand I am a a science Idiot. When people were going to science class, I was trying to light the bathroom on fire. I did not know science. I still don't. So, But what I've understood is there's no contradiction. The dinosaurs existed, and the dinosaurs uh, lived, and the dinosaurs died, and how they are in conflict. The Bible speaks of Leviathan and Job, which is the oldest book of the Bible, a creature that is just beyond compare, and his scales are like armor and all this stuff. So I don't think there's a conflict with uh, dinosaurs. In terms of uh, science, I don't think there's a conflict either. I just think the Bible is not exhaustive. Genesis covers a thousand year period and a few short verses. It's not an exhaustive treatise on how God did everything. It's just based on faith. God says it. Do you believe it? All right. In the beginning, God, if you believe that, then you're really doing well. And then if you say, in the believing God, but, then you're in trouble, okay? So God, he wants us to live by faith. That's how we please him. So that's how I think the Bible is there. Wendy from Murray is the first-time caller. LDS, Wendy, you're on Heart of the Matter.
0: Hi. Okay. I'm new to your show, and I haven't watched all the episodes, but explain to me if Jesus is praying and saying, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do when he's on the cross. Yeah. How is he not talking to the Father? How How is...
1: How does that work? Okay, it's a great question, Wendy. And it's one that the LDS always want to understand. And it's because the LDS have this idea that God is the Father. When you say God, it's only the Father. So the Christian view is God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus is praying. And he's praying to the Father. Remember, the Christian view of God is three. Remember? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we have three distinct persons in the oneness of God. So Jesus is a distinct person, God in the flesh, and he's praying to his Father. Now remember, Jesus is in a body of flesh. And he is subject to all the temptations that we are. He's subject to pain and bleeding. So in that state, on this earth, condescending below all things, he became man. And as a man, he showed us our relationship to the unseen, the invisible God, the scripture says. And so that's how Jesus is praying to his Father. He's in flesh like us, and he's praying to a Father who's in the Spirit. We're out of time. We've got 40 seconds left. Does that help at all?
0: It does. Basically, he's saying, this is very painful. I don't like it at all type of a thing. Yes.
1: Father, help me. And he's teaching us to do the same thing with our will and our flesh and our pain and our misery when we're here on earth through him.
0: So how did did the God decide when it was time for the suffering to end for Jesus in
1: the flesh? He didn't. He suffered through it all. We're out of time. We'll talk next week. Wendy, thank you so much. Uh, out of time listen a lot of things left on the sheep I can't get to it tune in next week as we cover part two of God and we'll explain more of what Wendy was asking and what Cedric was making up see you then
0: I'm gonna break I'm gonna break my I'm gonna break my rusty cage and run I'm gonna break